Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Thanks for hanging in there with us. It's great to have you today. My name is Tim Sridharan, and I am one of the co-lead interim pastors here at First Alliance. We're in a nine-week series on the book of Acts. And last week, we looked at a great tragedy, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and how God rooted out the seed of deception from destroying the church within. And today, we come across another sad, difficult text, the death of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, who was killed for his belief and faith in Jesus. And we're going to see how the seed for the church was sown through his death to be faithful wherever they were scattered. So what I'm going to do, one thing we love here is we love scripture, so we just love exploring God's word. So if you are new to church or exploring what faith is about, we encourage you to just join with us. We love God's word, and we hope that through his word, you will see more of Jesus and understand his call for us as the church and for each of us in our lives. So join me. If you have a Bible, open it on your phone, on your, in your, keep it in your lap in front of you. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 7, verse 54. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text today. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killings. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the ability to gather. Thank you for even just helping us fix this sound issue. And as we spend time in your word today, Holy Spirit, come and show us more about who Jesus is. Help open our eyes so that we can see nothing can hinder your plan or your purposes for us and your church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite things to, uh, I guess, snicker or laugh at are the attempts that homeowners make to prevent their animals from coming near or into their homes. You know, like homeowners will like barricade off things from animals from crawling underneath or try to knock squirrels' nests or prevent raccoons. But here's the reality. Try as you may, nothing can hinder animals from taking over whatever space they want to in the city of Toronto, especially those raccoons. And today as we, why do I even share this? Well, today as we explore this text, 
we're going to see how nothing can hinder God's plan and purposes for his church. And when they come across suffering, difficulties, and pain, God has a way of still accomplishing his purpose. And we're going to see what that means from Scripture and how that applies to our lives today. As we look at this text, we see many things happen. At verse 54, we see the members of the Sanhedrin heard this and they were furious and gnashed their teeth. The Sanhedrin was a council of 71 members, kind of the leaders of the nations who were the religious and cultural leaders of the Jewish people and, and were the guides for uh, people in worship and to follow in the worship of Yahweh. And here we see them gnashing their teeth. When someone gnashes their teeth, this is much more than just anger. This is rage. This is something psychological. So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here in verse 54? Well, Stephen is one of the deacons of the church. He helps to feed and care for the marginalized widows in his community. And here he is on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, the 71 religious leaders of the day. And he's making a proclamation pointing out how Jesus is one true God worthy of worship, God's only son. And the Sanhedrin are having none of that. What's made the leaders so angry in this text well, look at uh, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53. This is a speech that Stephen gives. He's testifying. He's bearing witness. And he challenges the three great pillars of popular Jewish piety. And by that, I mean he challenges their core worldview. Three of the things they hold the most dear. The land, the law, and the temple. You see, what Stephen was trying to do, he was trying to help them see that their three pillars, this land, the law, and the temple, needed to be viewed in what theologians call, or viewed through what theologians call, a Christological lens. And by that we mean we allow Christ to redefine what those things mean. Hopefully you see your slide on the screen there, and you see the land. The first thing we know about land for the Jewish people was that this promised land was what was guaranteed or promised to them from God when they fled out of Egypt and they wandered through the wilderness. This was supposed to be their home, their safe place to be. Yet what Stephen wanted them to realize, he wanted them to go back to the beginning of Acts. Jesus' last words to his apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To the Jewish people, to the Sanhedrin of that day, the land was their final destination. But Stephen wanted them to see, no, it's not your final destination. It's a launching pad. It's the starting point for the gospel to go from Jerusalem to the ends of the world so that all people can share in the hope of Jesus. The second worldview he challenges is their law. He, he challenges them, the Jewish law, specifically the Ten Commandments, was kind of at the heart of Jewish ethics and belief. But he actually wanted them to see, hey, how did Christ teach this law? Jesus said he did not come to abolish, but to what? To fulfill the law. And when Jesus said, Jesus took the law to such a deeper level that it probably challenged the religious leaders of the day. You know, you say, do not murder. Jesus said, well, if you have anger or hatred towards others in your heart, that's murder as well. You know, it's good not to commit adultery like the Ten Commandments say, but that's pointing to something deeper. Lust or desires for someone other than your spouse is also considered adultery. 
Stephen wanted people to realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and that the law was just helping us understand the nature and character of who our God is. Finally, we come across this image of the temple. If you actually look through the passage in Acts chapter 7, that speech of Stephen, I just encourage you after the sermon's over, feel free to read it for yourself. Stephen doesn't use the word temple that much, even though that was the place in Jerusalem where all the Jews came and gathered to worship. This was the place three times a year through, through religious festivals, people would return from across the entire world back to Jerusalem to gather together in worship. Stephen doesn't say temple often. He uses the word tabernacle. You know, in verse 45, we see that word tabernacle. And the tabernacle was what, where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence resided, uh, was with the people as they traveled. You see, when the people didn't have a home base, when, before Solomon built the temple, the tabernacle was set up wherever the Jewish people were going. When they crossed into the promised land and when they would go into battle, the tabernacle would be set up and the Ark of the Covenant would follow them wherever they went. And this is really key. Stephen wants them to see the temple shouldn't be the center point. It's the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where God's presence resides. And now, because of what Christ has done, when he ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit down upon believers, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the tabernacle. It is God's presence that indwells us and goes with us wherever we go. Stephen challenged their core worldview that the promised land is not an end place where we end up and are safe, but is the launching pad for the nations to know Christ. The law is not simply a bunch of rules, but it is the fulfillment of Christ's teachings. And the temple is not a static place where everyone comes to just gather, but more like the tabernacle or like the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence no matter where we are sent or scattered to. Those new to the Bible may wonder, oh, these Jewish beliefs, like what were they about? he challenged some of their core beliefs. And I was trying to think of an example of what this would look like in, moder- in the modern-day world. And imagine just an average North Korean citizen going to Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea, and saying, listen, sir, you're not very smart, you're a horrible leader, and this whole life work of yours is a giant failure. What do you think would happen to him? That's right. He would not live more than 24 hours. Stephen is challenging the religious leaders of the day in the same way. And at the end, he flips it back on them and says, listen, you think you are the ones who help people follow Yahweh? You're actually the people who hinder others from knowing the one true God and worshiping him and his son, Jesus Christ. Well, as you can guess, this does not bode well for Stephen's life. In verse 55, we see Steve, but look at Stephen's reaction, even in the midst of all this hatred. In verse 55 and 56, we see Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What does he declare? Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Our minds who are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, where Jesus, also in front of the religious leaders, at the, in front of the Sanhedrin, declares to them, when they are pester him, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And he says, you will see 
You know, you will see the Son of Man. He's talking about himself, seated at the right hand of God. And seated being the position that a king takes as he uh, proclaims his power and authority. When Jesus said that to the Sanhedrin, they lost their mind. And that eventually led to Jesus' death. So it comes as no surprise when Stephen says this to the leaders. They yell, they cover their ears, and at the top of their voices, they drag him out of the city to stone him. Yet look at verse 56. There's one slight difference between what Stephen says and what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will find the Son of Man seated. But Stephen says something else. He says, you will find him standing. You see, Stephen's on trial. He's bearing witness or testimony to Jesus. And in our North American culture, and I've only seen this on TV, when someone goes into court and they bear witness or testimony, they witness from a seated position on the stand. In the ancient Near East, you would stand to bear witness. What Stephen is simply pointing out to the people of the Sanhedrin, Jesus is in heaven and he's standing and he's bearing witness that what I am saying is of God. Does it make sense why they lost their minds and they couldn't handle what he was saying? Yet look how Stephen responded even in the midst of this horrible crisis. As they dragged him out, as they uh, dragged him out of the city to stone him with big stones that would have just destroyed him, and it would have been such a tragic, horrible way to end life. Stephen cries out. What does he cry out? I just lost my place, so give me a second. In verse 59, he yells out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This has echoes of Jesus saying these exact, uh, the, the writer Matthew noting these similar words in Matthew 27, 50. See, what we have here is Stephen modeling his life on the way of Jesus. The way he stands strong, the way he points to the Son of Man, the way he cries out here, all is modeled on the way of Jesus. And look at his last words before he is murdered. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These echo Jesus' words in Luke 23, verse 34, when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. As Stephen heads towards his death, even in his death, he models his life on the way of Jesus. Receive thy spirit, and Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Or in this case, do not hold their sin against them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being even able to say those words? Here's Stephen. He's done nothing wrong. He's caring for the marginalized, loving uh, the poor widows throughout the city of Jerusalem. He has made his life a service to Jesus and to others. And here he has been unjustly brought in front of the Sanhedrin. He's been falsely accused. And they're just propping up charges so they can arrest him and kill him. And here he's being dragged to his death. And what are his final words? Do not hold this sin against them. It's grace in the face of hate. How on earth does he do this? I know when people despise me or hate me like this, my reaction isn't one of love toward them. But I think there's something in Stephen's life that will help us. 
What does he do? He looks up to the heavens and he keeps his eyes figuratively fixed upon Christ. You know, when I'm going through a difficult time or others go through difficult times, what do people often tell us? If you're going through a tough time in school or with your job or with, or with your siblings or family, people say, just keep your head down and get through it. Just keep your head down and this will pass. This too shall pass. Yet from Stephen, we see this beautiful picture of our call is to look up into the heavens and look to Christ and keep our eyes fixed upon him. I just want to invite you in your suffering, in your difficulties, and the challenges that you're going through in your life right now to keep your eyes fixed upon Christ. When we keep our eyes fixed upon Christ and spend time on Sundays together worshiping in songs, spending time in scripture, uh, God's wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Look at Stephen. He's bold here, but he's not belligerent. He's bold yet full of grace and love and compassion for the people who are trying to murder him. And as we continue to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, it allows us to pray and to cry out in desperation. It allows us to experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit in difficult times. It allows us to stay connected to one another in community as well. Stephen modeled the way of Jesus by keeping his eyes fixed on Christ. Well, as Stephen was killed, a great persecution breaks out against the church. A godly men bury Stephen, yet there's violence against the church. And what do we see happen? As that persecution broke out against the church, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Yet look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You know, it was wise for these believers to flee their, their impending death. Yet here is the key. Whether the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem or the others who went somewhere else, what did they all do? They all boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus and shared his hope, his love, and his joy wherever they were. You know, if you look back to that Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is one of the big themes of, of, uh, in this book of Acts, you have the idea of the gospel you, going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And if you were to ask me, how do you think the church would have fulfilled that? I would have said something like this. There probably was a strategic plan. The missionary, they would have said missionary roving bands out to different places. Hey, you're from Rome. Go back to Rome. You understand the people. You're from Ephesus. Take a few people and go there. We'll send teams to encourage you every once in a while. And kind of the way often missionary sending is done today is how I would expect the early church to do it. Yet what happened? A great persecution broke out. Unjust death of Stephen resulted in Christians being scattered to other parts of the world where they continued to faithfully proclaim the name of Christ. Missiologists often call this involuntary missionary sending, and this has been part of God's plan from the beginning. Whether Christians scattered from this early persecution or those in Rome who, who, who were persecuted and would be scattered to other parts of the world, Christians often have been sent not by their own choice, but because of circumstances, to other places. You know, in the 5th century, there's the, a man known as St. Patrick. He, was, uh, he lived in Britain, yet he was captured by Irish pirates, which is just hard to imagine what that looks like. But 
he was taken as a slave to a foreign country. Yet what did he do in this foreign country? He proclaimed Christ, and today he's known as the Apostle of Ireland. The Huguenot Revolution in the 16th and 17th century saw French Protestants flee persecution in their country. What did they do? They went to neighboring countries. They went across the ocean and formed communities of Christ followers wherever they went. And you know, this involuntary missionary sending is happening today. One of the greatest people movements of this present age is the displaced people movement that we are seeing. People who flee their countries, refugees, uh, forced from their homelands to go to new places and are proclaiming Christ in a new land. One of my friends, his family in a country that uh, persecutes Christians, he had to flee because people tried to kidnap his children because of his faith. He fled here to Canada. You know what he calls himself? He calls himself a missionary to Canada. Did he choose to come here? No. But his involuntary sending, basically God's perfect plan for him, brought him here so that he is able to proclaim the good news of Jesus here to us Canadians. Amen? There will always be a place for missionaries, for the church to continue to send to different parts of the world, for church planters to the least reached people groups, those who are teaching abroad, uh, for those who care and serve the disenfranchised. But here's the reality. God has powerfully used displaced people for the glory of his name because nothing can hinder God's plan and purpose for his name to be glorified in this world. So what does this mean today for us as we wrap up our time? I want to speak first to the church in Canada, and then I want to speak to us as individuals. The reality is nothing can hinder God's plan and purpose for his people. I know in Canada, it's just, it's a bit challenging these days for Christians. We feel like we're a bit more marginalized and a bit more on the outside of society. And many dream of the days of decades past where Canada was more of a Christian nation and we had these Christian values and we honored God. Yet here's the reality. And here's my word of encouragement for you. Embrace your position as a minority. Embrace the fact that it's probably not going back that way, but don't fear it. Because nothing can hinder God's perfect plan for our nation. You know, you think of those early church moments where this persecution broke out. They probably wondered what will happen to the way, what will happen to the way of Jesus. It just grew stronger. When the Christians were persecuted across the globe, what happens? The word of God grows stronger. I remember spending time in a northern Indian village where every time someone came to faith, a house in that village would be burnt down. Guess what? More and more people were coming to faith. I look at China, all this missionary sending in the late 1800s, early 1900s, face up, facing against the Boxer Rebellion, and then Chairman Mao came to power in 1949, and people thought at that time that was the end of Christianity in China. There were one to two million Christians in China, and an oppressive communist regime came in, and now there are 50 to 100 million Christians, or even more. Who really knows? But the one thing we do know, nothing can hinder God's plan. So as a nation, don't fear the future. God continues to work. And when we adjust to the present reality that we may not have authority or power like we once did, but guess what? The gospel has influence. 
The gospel can transform lives. It can shape us and transform us from the inside out and transform our society. So may we continue to be a people who live out and proclaim the good news even if we are being marginalized in Canada. Because the reality is most of the world lives like that. And most of the world where the gospel is thriving are actually places where Christianity is marginalized. Here's the reality. God can't be stopped. For us as God's people, I just have three things to share. The first is just to note that God has a purpose and plan for our life. So the thing that we have to note is that don't write yourself off because of your past. God doesn't. Some of you may say, you know, Tim, like it's hard. Like I, I feel like I can't serve God. I'm like not worthy. I, I don't understand scripture. I don't know what it means to do this. this. These are the sins of my past or my brokenness or my hurts. Don't write yourself off because God has not. The joy of the gospel, and we see it in this passage. Chapter 8, verse 1, a man named Saul approved of their killing him. That's Saul a persecutor of the church, a murderer of Christians, actually became the greatest evangelist in history. He went and traveled across the world and eventually died for the name of Jesus. But through his work, people in all different countries across the globe came to know Christ. If God can use someone like me and my brokenness, if God can use someone like the apostle Paul and his brokenness, God can use any of us. Don't write yourself off because God hasn't. Secondly, don't deny your past. Let me explain. Many of us go through difficult things in our life and challenging things that it's just hard to look back and see how God it was there during those times. Loss, I look at our church, I can see people lost children, lost parents, who've lost a spouse, mental health struggles. Uh, just, just difficulties, failure, financial difficulties, uh, broken families. When we surrender the pain of our past and the destructive experiences and put them before the cross, God uses those to redeem not only ourselves, but to call others into greater gospel faithfulness. See, this is the redemptive nature of the gospel. God can use some of the most horrific things in history and work powerfully through them. You know, this past year I've watched a friend of mine lose their child, yet I can already see God sowing the seeds of how they are able to bless others through one of the greatest tragedies I've experienced. It doesn't take away from the tragedy. It doesn't take away from the pain but one of the things God can do, and I've seen this through my own life, through my mental health struggles and burnout, is that God can use that to cultivate mm, a passion for him, uh, a compassion for others that I didn't have before. Would I wish that experience on anyone again? No. But I surrender it to Christ and ask him to use it in however he feels like using it so that his kingdom may be glorified. Don't write off your past. God hasn't. Don't deny your past. God can use it for redemptive purposes in his kingdoms. And finally, just a word of encouragement. Sometimes the places we are at end up are exactly where he wants us to be, even if we haven't realized it. 
there are many of us who are like, oh, I just feel like I can't wait to be done school another three years and I'm finally done university. Or God, like, don't you know my heart? I'm, I'm single and I'm looking for my spouse and I'm, I, can you provide that person for me? Some of us are in jobs that we feel just stuck in and we're just looking for the next thing, but there's nothing available for us there. Yet sometimes we just have to stop and ask the question, is this where God wants me right now? And how can I be faithful where I am right now until he calls me somewhere else? Just a word of caution. There are people in patterns of sin. Are there people in difficult situations, abusive relationships? I'm not asking you to be faithful in these situations. There are situations where we have to discern and leave or exit or talk to someone. Yet for many of us, we are looking to the next thing when the thing that God wants for us is right in front of our eyes. You know, for someone who is single, I just encourage you to continue to live your eyes fixed on his kingdom and his purposes for you now and ask what he has for you next at the same time. Don't write yourself off because of your past. Don't deny your past. And sometimes the places where we are right now is exactly where God wants us to be. And what we need to do is be faithful where we are. The reality is we serve an unstoppable God, a God who brings revival, a God who transforms China when it reaches great levels of persecution, a God who's showing up in dreams and visions in the Middle East and transforming lives. May we keep our eyes fixed upon Christ because nothing can hinder God's purpose or plan. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way of the cross and how Stephen lived out the way of the cross in his own life. And Lord, you know our hearts. We ask for revival upon our nation, yet Father, let us be people who are faithfully proclaiming your good news, whether in our community, whether in our, in our, at our work or with our family. Holy Spirit, come give us, your, give us your wisdom and insight to know how to be people who continue to live out of your strength. Thank you that nothing can hinder your plan and purpose and that you are continuing to do good things to transform us and our city and our nation and our world so that more people may know the love, hope, and joy that comes from worshiping you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.